Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to Strange Planet. Great to have you aboard. Oh, about uh, 70 some years ago, nuclear physicist Enrique Fermi reportedly was asked a question about UFOs. And he replied, this may be uh, apocryphal, we're not really sure, we'll find out, but he uh, supposedly said, well, if they exist, where are they? Where are they? And somehow this phrase or this question became known as the Fermi Paradox. 
Ken Goodsword is uh, here, and he just wrote a book called Fermi, Fermi's Paradox is BS. That's the family show version. <laughs> and uh, Ken is a system analyst with expertise in industrial robotics, software engineering, and data design. And he enjoys applying these skills to ancient Hebrew and Sumerian documents and, of course, the UFO phenomena. And Ken's home on the web is dimensionfold.com, dimensionfold.com. Hey, Ken, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Hey, thanks for having me on the show today, Richard. It's, it's really a privilege to be here. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, I um, I was mistaken. I used to think that Fermi, Fermi's paradox was in response to the Drake equation, this um, probabilistic argument that, you know, trying to estimate the number of active communicative um, ET civilizations within the... Um, within the Milky Way galaxy, except the problem with that is the Drake equation, uh, named after Dr. Frank Drake, that came out about a decade after Fermi rep uh, reportedly asked the question, where are they? So it wasn't in response right. to the Drake equation, although one might argue it could have been uh, in the sense that the Drake equation is saying, well, there are all these, you know, the possibility for all of these ET civilizations, and then Fermi might have then posited, okay, where are they? But so let's let me back up though. Let me ask you first of all to explain um, or kind of set the scene for us. 1950, yeah. Enrique Fermi. Right. So, um, you know, it, just a couple of years earlier, there had been the the, uh, the Roswell incident, of course, uh, which I probably don't need to say much about. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, uh, what that did more than anything else was um, it made the the flying saucer phenomenon, as it was kind of being called then, um, it the Roswell incident turned that into um, kind of a household a household name, I guess, if you will. And um, before that, uh, there were certainly other UFO incidences, um, but they really Roswell was what really broke it into the press and it became um, a very popular story and soon everyone was talking about it. And so a lot of speculation and a, lo a lot of discussion ensued after that. Um, I'm actually writing another book uh, that's going to be out in about a month, probably uh, called before Roswell. And so in that book, I myself and my co-writer, uh, Barbara DeLong, are, will discuss the fact that Roswell was not a new thing at all. Um, th there had been reports very similar to Roswell afterwards and before, and really for as long as humans have been talking, they've been talking about UFOs. And um, so that's kind of what that book is about. Um, but in terms of, in 1950, it was sort of a fresh idea in terms of uh, just being something that people are discussing. So it's not surprising that um, Fermi and his colleagues would have discussed it during their lunch break, uh, which apparently is, is what was happening. Um, what, what is not necessarily known is whether they, uh, whether Fermi said anything about it really, um, or because the, the fact that we have like, you know, we quote him as saying, you know, where is everybody? 
Um, but it's not a direct quote and he never verified it. Um, so it's sort of this backwards, uh, like a retcon kind of a thing. And the, that's the whole thing of the, of the Fermi uh, paradox, um, particularly. So a um, Fermi may or may not have even said anything about it. Uh, it's pretty well did. known at the time, right? He was a, 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 a well yeah. nuclear physicist. He had never weighed in on the subject before. He never wrote any books or papers about it, right? Right. Uh, he he. It wasn't something that he was interested in, really, or certainly academically. He avoided the topic, or at least, you know, it wasn't um, part of his research. Uh, he was a nuclear physicist. He worked in. Um, I believe he worked in the, the, was it the Philadelphia experiment or, you know, some of those early things where they were working on developing the nuclear bomb. Um, so that was kind of his field. And I mean, it's a kind of an all consuming field. Uh, he, he probably didn't have time to write books about UFOs, even if he wanted to. Um, but so it is interesting that you brought up the Drake equation and it kind of is uh, this paradox supposedly kind of is in response to the Drake equation. Um, and the reason that, that we can say that is because it kind of has nothing to do with Fermi. Um, and it didn't start when he said that, like there was no Fermi paradox until decades later. Um, so at some point after, probably after Fermi's death, um, somebody had this idea and they wanted to get more credibility out of it. And they thought that, it would be good to attach someone famous's name to it. Um, so they kind of uh, retroactively credited it to Fermi, um, even though he had nothing to do with it. So it's kind of like reverse. Um, uh, what do you call it when you steal somebody's work? Um, plagiarism. Uh, plagiarism. Yeah. It's like reverse plagiarism in a way where they're uh, attempting to stick uh, a famous person's name onto their idea. Right, because I uh, don't know. Who... Sorry, I'm just going to yeah, go ahead. We should uh, just uh, we should give a definition of wh what is meant by a paradox. Is it well? A, a paradox is is kind of um, it, this is also an interesting point because um, even the word paradox is not clearly defined, although it used to be uh, because it used to be well understood by logicians and philosophers that a paradox is something which apparently is true, but seems as if it shouldn't be. Or, or the other is, way around. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's also the other way around. So it's like, it's, it's something that's true that shouldn't be, or now because of, just because of common usage, it's also come to mean something that isn't true that is there that it seems like it should be or right. but that's not really what it ever meant um so even the word paradox has become a bit of a paradox itself <laughs> <laughs> so it's very very strange um so in in the book i i i spend a good uh chapter kind of discussing the the idea of paradoxes um from a logician kind of a point of view and i examine um a lot of these uh what, what would you call it um fallacies like logical fallacies right and so basically um the the idea behind the fermi pal, uh, paradox is just chock full with a bunch of logical fallacies 
Um, however, I'm I like to be fair, so I'm I'm not going to just accuse uh, whoever these guys were who invented this thing. Nobody knows, um, but I'm I'm not just going to accuse them of using logical fallacies. I'm also pointing out that both sides of the argument, if, if you want to call it an argument, um, in terms of you know is there life in space or not, uh, both believers and debunkers and skeptics, all both sides are using. Uh, different fallacies and and sometimes the same fallacies. So right. so I go go through that a little bit in the book. Let me just ask you, um, if I could, Ken. First of all, mm -hmm. what is what is paradoxical about Fermi Fermi's statement or question? I should say it's a it's a question. Yeah. Where are they? What is paradoxical mm -hmm. about that? Well, really nothing. But ostensibly, so the reason why people think it's a paradox. Um, even though it, it doesn't really hold water. But the, the rationale is that, uh, you're right, it comes back to the Drake equation. So um, so essentially the, the Drake equation says, you know, the universe is so big, and I'm just going to give you the oversimplified version. Right. The universe is so big, um, there's so many stars with so many planets around them, um, and so that there, there has to be another version of something like us or something at least as intelligent or whatever. There's just got to be something out there, um, just statistically speaking. Right. Now, I mean, I, I <laughs> statistics is uh, possibly one of, one of the evilest things that man has created. Um, but uh, so I'm not even sure how much cre credence to put in statistics at all. Um but let's say, okay, maybe there's a valid point to the Drake equation. Um, the Drake equation also has a whole bunch of flaws uh, in terms of mainly because all the variables that it uses, and there's probably 10 or 12 of them, um, all of them are essentially uh, just pulled out of thin air. With And they're not evidence-based. I mean, some of them have a little bit of evidence, but there's, there's like a lot of... Um, predicting the climate using models. Well, yes, um, it would be like predicting the climate using models if you were doing it in 1920 and the only models you had were, oh, look, put a balloon up in the atmosphere okay. because the that's kind of the the the, the level of um, reliability that we're that we're looking at in that. Okay. data. Now, having said that, um, astros astroscience and um like the the exploration of space has improved leaps and bounds in the last 10 even 10 years and like even in the last two or three years uh we are discovering things at an exponential rate um that are that are very tightly integrated and related to the drake equation and to the question of uh whether there may or may not be life in space um and that's kind of the main point of this book is that we look at um, a lot of these new discoveries in science. Um, for example, uh, we now know of at least 5,000 exoplanets, um, and hundreds of those are within this so-called Goldilocks zone around their sun, which means that, you know, it's, it's in a pretty good area in terms of not too hot, not too cold. Um, and on top of that, we are finding um, traces of water and also oxygen and even um, 
biocarbon like uh, organic uh, molecules everywhere we look in space so and so those are kind of three um three or four other chapters in the book where we look at well you know maybe 10 even 10 years ago it used to be you could ask and have a philosophical debate is there water in space because nobody knew and so you could guess or you know and a lot of times this is what the drake equation um variables are is just these like guesses from 10 years ago or whenever the drake equation was was founded we've come a long way since then um so i think it's probably time for somebody to uh to come up with a drake 2.0 um and i think that we would be working with a lot better um uh, variables and data now um but really like yeah like i was saying 10 years ago you could you could say you know is there is there water in space well who knows and here's why i think this and why i think that but now we know definitively um, that there is water uh, pretty much everywhere we look. Um, there's water on Mars. There's water on the moon. Uh, there's water in um, most of the planets within our solar system. Um, well, probably all of them, but we haven't confirmed a few of them. Um, we have confirmed the presence of air on of like some kind of atmosphere on every single planet and other nine other moons within our solar system. Uh, so the, the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, a lot of those. Um, and, and our own moon even has an atmosphere, which is not something that we really were talking about 10 years ago. Now, it's not much of an atmosphere, uh, but it's enough to make you have to look at where is it coming from? Because the, the weird thing about the atmosphere on the moon is it, it can't stick around like there's not enough gravity to keep it there and so it it goes drifting off into space and yet it remains like there's there's something there uh so how is that possible well it turns out that air is seeping out from the rock of the moon or, or inside the moon somewhere um, and i'm not saying the moon is hollow don't get me wrong um but so, sometimes somehow in the moon these uh like small traces of oxygen um, and, and other elements are coming out uh, that then are, are light enough to float above the surface. Um, and eventually they disperse, but you know, they're always there because they're always being replaced. Um, and so we're seeing these types of mechanisms, um, not only in the moon, uh, but also uh, on Mars, we, we see a very similar situation where Mars actually does have enough atmosphere to make wind. Um, and you can actually see uh, some video on from the Mars rover uh, where there's uh, dust clouds being whipped up. Right. Well, the European, the European Space Agency is heading to Jupiter to survey their moons. Uh, and now they may have been dismissed at one time because they're basically like ice balls. But underneath the ice, very, very deep oceans essentially so well yeah you can even further expand uh, to include planets which we may not have or, or moons not necessarily in what we call the habitable uh, uh, the hospitable zone right so, right now so that's very interesting because as it turns out um there was no water on earth it, on the early earth uh because we were we're too close to the sun 
Um, and well, when it was super hot here and the rocks were all still, you know, cooling it, like basically we're living on a lava ball, uh, that's still cooling down. Right. I mean, that's, that's the point of any planet is that, uh, it used to be, um, a lot hotter and it's all gradually cooling down. That's just how universes work, I guess. Um, but back in the day, like billions of years ago, the, the earth was was cooling down and, and rocks began to form. Um, at that point, uh, water would have been gaseous and just blown off. So all of the water that we have on Earth was not from the Earth's original formation. So where did it come from? Well, during, during that same time period, um, you have to go out past, so past Venus, past Earth, past Mars, you get to where the um, the asteroid belt is now. And uh, right around that area is where it started to be cold enough for water to, to form in liquid form. Um, so it's, uh, it seems like just, just purely by that, um, that fact alone, you would think, oh, well, maybe there's, maybe there's water in the asteroid zone or, you know, or, or out past that. Well, yeah, there definitely is. And there's definitely water on Jupiter and Saturn. And these, these have been, uh, verified by, um, like spectrum spectrology and, and other, um, other experiments as well. Um, the, a couple of years ago, the, I believe it was the Japanese, um, space agency sent a probe out to the asteroid belt. Uh, or actually, sorry, I'm getting two things mixed up. They they actually intercepted a comet, um, and they they slammed their probe into the comet and videotaped the whole thing. And from like basically, their probe split in half, and half of it smashed, and half was the camera. So what they found from that was that uh, this comet ha- is made out of uh, quite a large percentage of uh, frozen water, um, so ice or snow. It was it was very loosely packed. Basically, the whole thing was a snowball. Um, since then, uh, a bunch of other um, work has been done in just in the last couple of years um, in terms of searching for water in the asteroid belt, and um, it's it's insane how much water there is in the asteroid belt. So, like everywhere they look, they're finding water. There's one of the biggest chunks. Um, that's in the asteroid belt is a, a, a object called Ceres, which is basically a microplanet, um, and it has a ton of water on it. I'll actually, I'm going to see. I think I have the actual stats right here. Uh, maybe not. Yeah, here it is. So um, Ceres not only has water, uh, but it has like basically like a geyser kind of like an old faithful type of thing right um and it's shooting water out from from beneath the surface and shooting it into space um it does it at roughly uh okay it's at uh three liters per second so it's not very much it's like uh kind of like pouring out a pop bottle or well maybe a little faster than that um because if you can pour out a pop bottle in in a second, um, yeah, that's that's way too fast. So 
anyway, a not insubstantial amount of water is just like spewing out of this planet. Um, and that's not the only place. Um, the same type of thing is happening on some of the moons of Jupiter. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, but one of them has this massive crater, or uh, not crater, but like a geyser. Um, but the, the interesting about Ceres is that uh, they they have determined that, um, uh, let's see here, it's, it's also got um, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. Um, all of these things are like kind of the basic elements of how organic chemistry works. So interesting. Um, and there's a lot of other clues around those elements, particularly um, that we're finding, again, almost everywhere we look. So all to, to, again, reinforce the idea that Drake's equation, which came out like 1961, uh, and I mean, and the and the estimates were anywhere. I mean, it's 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 almost useless. It's anywhere from a thousand, I think, to one hundred million um, uh, planets with civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, that's not very useful. That <laughs> a thousand to yeah. million. But yeah, I guess the point here is that that even that, uh, even if we're talking about a hundred million, that's probably way off. It's an under. You're, we're saying it's underestimating. Perhaps I have no idea. Maybe there's only one. Maybe right. there aren't any. Um, but like, because it's statistics. Who knows? Yeah. I took a statistics class at university, and here's what I learned. If any time anybody asks me what the probability of that or that is, I say it's fifty fifty. It it either will or it won't. That's all I can figure right. out. Right. Um. But yeah, back to the back to the Drake equation thing. Um. I mean. I guess that is the crux of the paradox. Right. If it's if there is a paradox at all, uh, which there isn't, but if there was one, it would hinge on on these two kind of two assumptions. Right. So if there's a hundred million planets in the in the Milky Way that are mm -hmm. uh, that have civilizations, where are they? Right. So this is another part of the book, which again I'm I don't dive too into. Uh, the field of ufology in this book, um, but it has to be factored in. Um, so here's the, here's the paradox, in my opinion. You have I don't know how many scientists are are on the earth the earth right now. At least millions. There's got to be millions of professional scientists, um, and there's also millions of people who are witnessing strange phenomenon in the skies. Uh, and or being contacted or just have a lot of interesting stories to tell. Some of them sound super weird. Now, being weird isn't, uh, is not an excuse to stop using science. Um, so here's the paradox. Why is it that there's all this rich, uh, hugely vast, rich field of data um, that's easily accessible uh, to anyone who cares to look into it. I mean, especially now with um, with the availability of uh, Wikipedia and any, everything, all the other parts of the internet and Facebook groups that are dedicated to this and stuff like that. Um, anybody who wants to can easily become an amateur or armchair ufologist. Um, so ology is the science of stuff. So you've got all these scientists 
um, who will are basically not interested at all in a branch of science, this huge branch of science that's barely been touched, uh, is extremely data rich, um, but is a little bit weird. Now, so what that to me is paradoxical. Like, don't you find that if you were a, a person who wanted to know how the universe worked, um, you might want to look into this field of data? Right. In other words, that's the real paradox. It's not yeah. whether they're here, but given the amount of anecdotal evidence, some trace evidence, uh, I mean, there's a huge paper trail, even the U.S. government and military mm -hmm. are very interested. Uh, and yet, from a scientific point, it's absolute crickets. Uh, we'll take a quick time out. And uh, Ken Goodsword stays with us. The Fermi, Fermi Paradox is BS is the name of the book. Back with more in a moment. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Ken Good's Word. The book is The Fair May Paradox is BS. How do we get a copy? Um, well, at the moment, it has not quite been released yet. It actually comes out on February 18th. But I do have a special offer for you guys right now. Um, if you go to my website, dimensionfold.com, um, you'll see the uh, new releases banner. Yeah, uh, it's got the picture of the book on there. You can click into that. And on there, um, there is a, um, a link to a pre-order for for Amazon Kindle version, uh, the ebook, and I think I even have something about um, uh, some other special offer. I, you know what? I can't remember exactly what it is, but for sure uh, you can you can pre-order the ebook. Um, and if you join the mailing list, you know what? I'll tell you what. If you join the mailing list today, um, I'll go through and I'll I'll assume that it's listeners of this show. And I will send you guys uh, a, a link for a free PDF download. 
All right, that's great. Thank you. Very generous, okay. my listeners. Uh, keeping up, this is a pre-record, so it'll be uh, maybe a week it'll from be, today. Yeah, I'll, okay. What I'll do is I'll send you an email as soon as this goes live, and then. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. All right. So getting um, back to the the real paradox here is that given <clears throat> the the amount of uh, evidence, anecdotal, um, trace trace evidence, paper trails, documents, and so forth. Where is the scientific uh, curiosity? Yeah, exactly. Um, so now we're starting to, the scientific community almost appears to be acting in a way that is almost more stereotypical with uh, religious dogmatism um, in that we've already made up our minds and uh, this is what we believe. Uh, so go away. We don't want to talk about it. Um, that's not science. No, it's the antithesis. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, it's interesting, too, because they, and the scientific community um, eats, eats their young alive if they do cross that line. Um, and, and not even their young, but even their well-respected members um, so I want, I do want to talk about a guy named Richard Hoover. Um, Richard Hoover is the world's, uh, leading, um, expert in microbial extraction. Um, so what he does is he, he'll take a rock, like any old rock really. And if there's, if there is any, um, like fossilized, uh, tiny uh, microbial life forms in that rock, he can find it and get it out. Um, now there's other people on, you know, other people in the field who, who can do, who are, you know, trying to, trying to be as good as Richard. But I mean, this guy is like the King he's done. He's done. All, he has this huge track record of all these cool things that he's found. Um, and where it gets really interesting is a lot of the places that he's looking are in meteorites that have fallen to earth. And so he, he, he gets shipped around the world because people are calling him, Hey, we, we've got this meteorite. We want you to examine it. So he'll fly up to Alaska. He'll go over to Africa wherever he's needed. And he performs, um, his analysis and he's able to, um, extract these, uh, fascinating um basically tiny fossils um and he's been doing this for quite a long time i don't i can't remember his his first one that did that but i'm gonna guess maybe 20 years um the and the guy's a legend in science like he he actually worked for nasa for 45 years um he had he holds 11 u.s patents uh he was vote he was given nasa's inventor of the year award um sometime during his tenure there and and now basically this all this stuff that he's doing now is kind of like he's retired from nasa and now this is his new thing so he and found he's microbial the, he found fossils of microbial life inside <clears throat> meteorites that fell from yeah. outer space yeah landed on earth yes yes that should be many last, times that should be new york yeah. Times big bold headline exactly and and actually, to be fair, it has gotten some some press, uh, but nobody really 
knows what to make of it or or whatever. I mean, it's in the paper. You can you can actually, if you Google it, uh, some, some the New York Times probably did cover it, but you know it's buried on page fifty or something. Um, but yeah, and so the reason for that is because the the scientific community poo poos it. So even though this guy's got a stellar reputation, um, you. <laughs> You have these pundits saying things like, oh, well, he made a mistake or he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. Okay. So l- look at this. Okay. You know, Mary Leakey who yeah. discovered Lucy. Yes. Um, so she, at the time, Mary Leakey was the number one paleontologist. Um, so this is kind of like saying, oh, uh, well, I'm interested in paleontology. I teach it at Rutgers or whatever. And <laughs> So I'm going to come and I'm just going to say that, well, I've never seen the skeleton. I've never been to the site. I didn't look at any of the evidence, but, you know, I don't really like what she's saying. So she's wrong and, and stupid. Um, and that's essentially what what the community is doing to um, to Hoover. Uh, like they're literally just calling him names. Um, and, you know, it's it's not that unusual because. This has been happening to anybody, uh, anybody who who is even remotely academic uh, can't poke their head out of the sand uh, because everyone else who's got their head stuck in the sand uh, will kick that sand in their faces. Um, is that it's, because this it's is pathetic? Because this is not the, the whole UFO ET issue is not a scientific problem. It's a political problem. And the politi- Absolutely. politics dominate in culture over Science. Scientists are dependent on grants. Scientists are uh, dependent on tenure. Um, publishing is, you know, the peer review <clears throat> process. All that. It's all highly politicized. So is that the issue here? Absolutely, that's the issue. Um, there, there are many scientists who have lost their jobs, uh, lost their careers, in fact, uh, because they got sick of that. And, you know, they did say something. Um, so... In, in the case of a guy like Hoover, well, he's basically doing like freelance work. So it, it doesn't really matter um, if if they're, you know, calling him names. Um, but if you're if you happen to be, um, you know, maybe in your 30s or 40s and when you stumble onto something interesting and you happen to work at uh, any kind of u- university or, or, or even a government lab or anything like that, um, if you find the wrong material and you say the wrong thing, uh, things will go badly for you. Um, I mean, the government does this too. And, you know, we're, we've all heard stories like, um, uh, you know, s- some of the kind of UFO whistleblower guys like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a name now. Well, anyway, there's, there's a lot of stories out there um, where, People are even having their lives threatened, uh, or you know, the CIA is busting into their uh, their home and and stealing their shit. Like that's not cool. Well, like and the, so, uh, the gentleman out in uh, in uh, Nevada that was studying Area Fifty One had a website dedicated to Area Fifty One, and uh, the military came in on mass. I don't know. There was like something like thirty or forty uh, individuals that showed up at his door. Uh, it was a no-knock warrant. They took away his computer. Right. They took away everything. No explanation, even to this day. Right. Yeah, I, I saw that on video, actually. 
Um, yeah, I wish I could think of his name, man. That guy's uh, like he's kind of a hero of mine, actually. And but you know, my my brain is getting old. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really sad that we have to kowtow to the popular opinion um, in order to uh, to maintain any kind of credibility. And why is that when, on the other hand, uh, the people in power can say whatever they want with zero evidence, zero data to back it up, um, and we're just supposed to go along with it? Uh, you, uh, There's something seriously wrong with that. George R. New is the gentleman in uh, Las Vegas. Sorry. I just okay. I, I was thinking of someone else. But yeah, there's, there's numerous examples um, where, you know, you find out something that you're not supposed to know. Um, and then it's like, well, shoot, uh, like, so, and, and there's a lot of other people who are in that same position and they probably made maybe a smarter choice, uh, and just didn't say anything. Um, and then okay. there's all the, so I was just gonna say, so given all that, we'll take a time out here in a minute, but uh, we'll yeah. get you to address this on the other side, given all <clears throat> that, you know, the suppression, um, of evidence, the intimidation, Maybe we can refer back then to the Fermi paradox. Absolutely. And so I've got a prime example of that. All right, we'll do that. Ken Goodsworth stays with us. The Fermi paradox is BS. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Ken Good's word, Fermi Paradox is BS. And again, uh, just refer us to the website where we can do the pre-order on that. Yeah, that's dimensionfold.com. Dimensionfold.com. All right, um, so getting this, relating what we've been talking about, the suppression, the intimidation, uh, the, the, the campaign of silence and disinformation and how that relates back to the Fermi Paradox, which again, titled mm -hmm. the book, The Fermi Paradox is BS, uh, attributed uh, to Enrique Fermi, the nuclear physicist in 1950, um, who posited, you know, well, if these UFOs are so, you know, if these ET civilizations are so plentiful, you know, where are they? So, right. So, one really amazing uh, factoid that I had no idea about uh, until I started digging halfway through writing this book. Um, so this this comes down to suppression. And in this case, the culprit is NASA. Now, of course, NASA sort of reports to the government or Senate or something. I don't know how it works. Um, but they're also sort of like self-sufficient. So it's, it's hard to know who's making these calls or why, um, but check out this story. So in 1976, um, NASA sent a mission called the Viking mission, mm -hmm. and um, they, they orbited Mars and they set down a lander. Now, this is an unmanned mission. Um, we have not sent men to Mars yet, but we will soon. Um, but basically, uh, this lander... Uh, set down on Mars and um, did some soil samples and stuff like that and uh, took a couple uh, small vials of 
Mars dirt and um, brought it back to Earth. So we do have uh, samples of Mars um, soil and we've been analyzing those for uh, 50 years or however long that is since 1976. Um, it's a long time. Now, um, they've also, because they the NASA guys at the time were sort of cognizant of their own limitations. And so what they did was they analyzed some of the soil and some of the soil, some of the samples, they just stuck in a deep freeze and have never opened them. Um, so, I mean, good for them. That, that was very, uh, very clever and, you know, showed a lot of forethought. Um, so I'd like to see what happens when we open those. Um, but here's here's what we already know. Now, this is crazy. Like, I could not believe it when I heard this. So right after they got back, or sorry, not even, they didn't even have to get back. This this happened while the while the thing was still on site. So it's it's there. It's got like a little probe into the dirt and it's like doing some analysis already and some various experiments that had that were designed ahead of time to try out different things with this dirt. Um, and and then they're beaming the results back through radio. So one of the things that there was three um, sort of a three part experiment that was designed by a couple of the top NASA um, scientific designers. Now, keeping in mind, if if you wanted to do an experiment on Mars, uh, you would have to convince NASA that your experiment is a great idea and one that they should spend millions of dollars on. Um, so these guys already passed that test. Uh, they These are people who worked for NASA. They were like their own guys. And they had designed a couple of tests. Now, these tests involved injecting um, certain chemicals, or not chemicals, I guess, but, well, whatever, elements, uh, injecting stuff into, this, into the, the ground on Mars. And then... Um, depending on what was in the ground to react with it, they would see certain different, uh, different results that would happen. Now, basically it's kind of, so one of them uses, uh, used like oxygenation and it was, they were basically the results would tell them what types of things were in the ground. Uh, there was one where they stuck oxygen into the ground. There was one where they stuck carbon dioxide into the ground. And there was one where they stuck water into the ground. Now, all three of these experiments um, had remarkable results, and they were able to capture those results. And I, I can't get into the technical specifics off the top of my head. I barely understand them myself. But it has to do with the types of reactions that life forms uh, would do due to metabolism. So basically, every time the, the probe stuff into the ground it got metabolized in uh, the same way that uh that it would be if there were living microorganisms in the soil uh whether that be fungus or um some type of plant life or you know like a um, bacteria or something like that sounds like you're saying life was discovered on mars in 1976 that's exactly what i'm saying and so when the when the when the results were beamed back to NASA, uh, the people who who um, who designed the experiments 
were like shocked and ecstatic uh, because, I mean, they didn't really expect to find life on Mars. Um, but like, so, so, and I have their names here. It's Gil Levin and Patricia Strat. And these are, again, are like high level NASA scientists. Now they, they literally said, okay, we found life on Mars, like, and they were ready to go to press with it, but they weren't allowed to. Now, um, both of these two scientists uh, died just in the last two years. So uh, one, on, one in 2021 and one in 2020. Both of them at, on their deathbeds still said, yeah, we found life on Mars. They stuck to it. Um, I mean, they could be wrong, but again, these are smart people. This is kind of the whole thing um, with, you know, the Mary Leakey phenomenon again. You can't just say, oh, you don't know what you're doing just because you don't like the results. Well, the other thing is, okay, maybe there's some question as to whether they were right. Maybe they were misreading the data. What's one of the major tenets of science It's and an experiment is repeatability. So you try it again. Mm -hmm. And again, exactly, exactly. So in in the time since 1976, when they got these, okay, maybe they're inconclusive results. So what does NASA do? They cancel all the Mars programs that were supposed to happen after that. And they don't go back to, the, to Mars um, until now. Now they're talking about doing it again. So finally... Um, and it's probably only because they're scared that Elon Musk is going to beat them to the punch <laughs> and he will like he, Elon will be on Mars, not himself, but he will have, uh, he will have a device on Mars within the next three years. Um, he wants to have people on Mars within the next 10 years. And i very strongly believe he will. And so given he's now joining, he's joining forces with NASA now and they're working together. So they kind of have, they're, he's forcing their hands a little bit. Right. As he did with Twitter. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Transparency. So that'll be, uh, that'll be very interesting. Ken Goodsword is the author of Fermi's Paradox is BS. And again, dimensionfold.com. And you can order a, uh, an advanced copy. Check it out. Um, and also, or you, your very generous offer for people listening to this podcast, do, maybe they can use the code word. Yeah. You know what? I'll, I'll just go, I'll just put a link up on that page. And, and the day that this show airs, um, that page will have a live, uh, PDF download link. Um, and, uh, and then it's only going to be there for maybe a day or two. So take advantage of it as soon as you hear this show. A free uh, PDF download. Yeah. Very, very kind. Ken, great meeting you. Fascinating discussion. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You too, Richard. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.